Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dino Lion Media presents The History of Being Black. Welcome to another episode of The History of Being Black. I am still Black and I'm still your host, Eunice Elliott. Every episode, I have privilege and honor to talk to some Black folks who are mostly thought leaders. Folks are really making some moves. And so keep in mind, at the end of every episode, we call you to action. We ask you to be the change because each one of us has a tremendous responsibility to be the change in our communities. But today's guest is really doing the work. When you say, put your, your money where your mouth is, He's doing all of it, his money, his mouth, his pen. And according to himself, it says he's the greatest children's book author of all time. So, I mean, we have really come up here on the History of Being Black. Please welcome Ty Allen Jackson to the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Ty. A bunch of introductions. That one might be my most favorite. I really appreciate that. And I'm also from the Bronx, so I do not like ego. So I'm really real when I talk about that greatest children's book author of all time. And I dare anyone to challenge you. Okay, well, let's just start that off. When I was going through your website, first of all, you are obviously a prolific writer and speaker. Um, but when you decide to put that on your website, the greatest children's book author of all time, and then you have dot, 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 according to himself, speak to me. <laughs> What was the thought process behind putting that on your website? Well, honestly, it was just to project fun. You know, I like to think of myself as a fun-loving, charismatic author. You know, when you think of authors and even authors of children's books, it doesn't generally evoke thoughts of joy and happiness. Usually I think of a, a Dr. Seuss or, you know, someone in a cabin somewhere writing something. And and I'm not that guy. You know, I'm a kid from the Bronx who grew up on hip hop, you know, who, who, who loves pop culture. And I just like to think of myself as a fun-loving guy. So, so what better way to project that fun? Then to the moment that you jump on my website to have something as brash and bold yet humorous and silly as saying, yeah, this guy is the children's greatest children's book ever, you know, according to himself. I love it. It caught my attention. But what caught my attention even more is how many books you have written. Do you know offhand how many books you have out right now? Yeah, it's actually soon to be six. Um, and next month, I released my sixth uh, children's book. I've sold over 100,000 copies of my books all independently. Wow. And um, so, yeah, I'm very aware of each and every one of them, the power that they all possess and the relevance that they've had put in the hands of the children that they've uh, gone to. And I, I couldn't be more proud to, to, to be able to be in this position. So when you talk about how many copies you sold and, and how many books you've done, take me back to before you even wrote the first word of your first book. What was your inspiration? What was your motivation to say, I'm going to be a children's book author? Well, it all happened. This is like the beginning of my TED talk. It, it, it all happened one day on a hot summer's day when my, at the time, eight-year-old son asked me a question that changed my life. And he said, dad, can we open up a lemonade stand? So we went to the corner of the street where we live on here in Western Massachusetts. And in three hours, 
he made $50 selling lemonade, which totally oh, wow. blew my mind. Like, there's a lot of adults that don't make $50 in three hours. Right. So he said, Dad, what am I going to do with all this money? And I really didn't know. So I went to my local bookstore to see if I could find a book to teach my son about being an entrepreneur and what to do with his 50 bucks. And out of the thousands of books on the shelf, I couldn't find any books that taught kids about money. And I also couldn't find, I also struggled to find contemporary books featuring a young black protagonist that looked like my son in a contemporary, you know, positive mainstream manner. And the name uh, Danny Dollar just popped into my head. And I thought to myself, maybe I could find somebody to write a book titled Danny Dollar. And then I thought about a quote from Gandhi to be the change you wish to see in the world. So if someone was to write a book about financial literacy, that person was me. Like I said, the name Danny Dollar just popped in my head. I went home and started typing. It took me a year to learn how to write this story. And then after being rejected by 147 different agents and publishers, I, I, it took me another year to learn how to publish it myself. And that book, Danny Dollar, to this date has sold almost 80,000 copies. It's um, the, the foundation of a program titled Danny Dollar Academy that's been implemented in countless schools across the country, including the LeBron James School in Akron, Ohio. It's been a theatrical performance, and I'm actually in discussions right now with um, some pretty high-profile um, media companies to get it adapted into a series. Oh, wow. Congratulations. So when you have all of this greatness that comes from you deciding to self-publish, do you then reach back out to the 147 that rejected you and say, booyah, in your face? <laughs> you know what? I don't have to. I, I know one day they're going to open up their newspaper and they're going to see you know, this particular book on the uh, on the you know uh, top twenty five of best selling books in the past decade, and they're going to say, "Isn't that the same book that we said no to?" So you know what, uh, they'll, they'll get their comeuppance. I'm not I'm not worried about that. I'm more focused on me moving forward than me looking backwards. So there's so many lessons that I'd love for you to talk to our listeners about from that exercise in rejection and moving forward. And then also what that means for your son to be able to see you look for something, not find it and create it and not just create it, but create it on a large scale. So first, talk to me about actually dealing with the rejection. You know what? I mean, I'm I'm a fan of adversity. Um, I was in sales prior to this and you're generally going to get substantially more no's than you are yeses. And um, I've, I've never been deterred by rejection. In fact, I've always looked at uh, adversity as lessons to make me stronger. And that's exactly how I felt. You know, I, in fact, the more rejections I got from, from publishers and agents, the more I felt like I was on the right track. I mean, say it out loud. My book is about a young black boy who promotes financial literacy, inspiring others to bring out the best version of himself. You know what? In mainstream America, that might not be something that, that they're ready for. That, right. that, and there was no way that I was going to deter myself to think that this wasn't something that our young people needed to see. So every no kind of empowered me just a little bit more, not to mention it forced me to learn how to self-publish. And now I'm the self-publishing company that's put over 100,000 books into the hands of children. And that wouldn't have happened if somebody would have actually said yes. So it's also given me a tremendous opportunity to find and navigate the world of publishing in a different way. Many authors have the objective of getting their books onto bookshelves. That's not my objective. My objective is to get in books into the hands of children. And I don't need bookstores to do that. So I've looked within myself and found my own strength, doubled down on those strengths and use my marketing network uh, um, and uh, personality, charisma to, um, to build relationships with organizations like the United Way, NAACP, YMCA, Boys and Girls Clubs and numerous financial institutions. And it's through them that I've been able to sell eight, almost 80,000 copies of this book. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say I'm a fan of adversity. 
Okay. <laughs> now I understand exactly what you're saying. I've just never heard it put that way. I'm, I'm, I'm big into no's as well, because I feel like no's usually very rarely mean no. It just means no, not right now. No, I'm not the person to talk to about it. No, I hadn't planned on it. No, I'm not sure. So I generally, when I get a no, I do feel empowered. As you mentioned, I usually will just respond with, how do you mean no? But to be a fan of adversity, I think it goes back to this idea that we learn more from our failures and our rejections than a lot of our wins. And so that process of 147 rejections, you feel were necessary for your success. Yeah. And necessary for me and my successes is really the perfect way to put it. You know, I look at it this way. It's not their job to say yes. It's not. It's my job to force them to say yes. Like it's my job to be able to exalt my books, my character and, and, and what it is that I bring to the table and establish such value into it that you can't reject it and that you can't deny it. So I, I, I don't I don't I don't mind the rejections. It, it just it just forces me to look internally and figure out how can I build greater value in me and, and my products and find people who will also find them of value. And that's what I think is really important. I think that's what really determines a person from being successful versus not being successful. It's not about being the most talented. It's about being the most valued. Like the more valuable you are, the more that people can't do about your product or service and success and money and everything else will follow after that. So I just continued with every rejection to pour more into me and finding people aligning with my value purpose. And that's the way that I've been able to be successful. So now you say it took you a year to write the first book, um, but Danny Dollar just popped in your head immediately. What was the process uh, for you to come to that when you finally said, "Okay, this book is ready to be published? in that year? Like what, what, what was the moment that you knew it was ready? Um, well, after I finished writing the book and I, I believed in it wholeheartedly and then got those bunch of rejections, you know, I, I, I did have to look inward and say, am I even capable of doing this? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know anything about the publishing world, but you know, I'm also a believer that I don't care who you are. I mean, Dr. Seuss, who probably have sold more books than anybody else on the planet or children's books for that matter. I mean, you know, he gets up every morning, he brushes his teeth well, when he was alive. You know, like I, I, I fail to believe that anyone, regardless of who they are, is more capable than I. So all I need to do is just put in the work. And the more that I put in the work, the more that it uh, assists me in, in pushing my agenda forward. But, you know, once once I had the idea for the book and I saw the value of promoting financial literacy to our kids, there was no boulder that was going to be put in front of me that was big and heavy enough for me to, to not move it. I knew that this book mattered. I knew that this book was important. You know, the fact that I grew up impoverished on welfare to a teenage mom, and we never discussed money at the, at the dinner table, and money's not taught in schools virtually in any capacity from middle, from, from elementary to high, um, and especially in the hood. It's, it's, just, it's just not. So I really knew the value of this. And I, and I, and I said, this, this book is, is going to be an essential tool to young people or really to people of all ages, to inspire particularly our young people to, you know, to discover this pathway. No matter who you are in this country, financial literacy is going to be important to you. Whether you know it or you don't know it, it's going to matter into your life. And the more that you're relevant of it and know it and, and, and introduced to it at an early age, the more that it's going to carry on more in life. And so I just knew this book mattered. And, and so I just had to find the, the the, the wherewithal to be able to bring it to uh, to fruition. And when I did, I, I literally sold thousands of copies in the very first couple of months. And that's when I knew I was onto something big. 
So when you went that first day to go just find a book, you were just going to buy a book uh, yeah. after its success. Were you surprised, disappointed, confused on why you weren't finding what it is you thought you went in there to buy at this point in the world? You know, um, at this day and age, were you surprised at how little was on the shelves for little black kids or even for this topic? Uh, no, I wasn't surprised at all. I, I felt like my eyes had been open. Um, you know, like I took the red pill and I was able to see things a little bit clearer. So I wasn't surprised at all. And I think because I kind of put together why I couldn't find young black strong protagonists, especially promoting financial literacy um, right there in that bookstore. I, I knew right then and there, I knew the answer why. We all know the answer why. And that was all the more reason why it really was important to me to get this book out into the world. It also compounded with 147 rejections that I'm only going to assume the majority, if not all of them, were probably white. That, you know, to the ideal of putting a, a young black boy on front street promoting financial literacy probably goes a lot up against what this country has always been about. So, you know, it was it was it was that foresight in dealing with them and the foresight of being in that bookstore and not seeing what I know was really important that gave me the drive and ambition to, to bring this to fruition. So, yeah, a good portion of the publishing companies are, you know, helmed by white people over like 76 percent. I think the last time I looked into that for something. And it's one of those things where I, I misspoke just now when I asked you the question and when I said kids um, books for little black kids. But it's really this understanding that all kids need to see books with brown people in them. Uh, can you talk to me about the importance that these books aren't just for black kids, it's for all kids to have an understanding of, um, you know, there's a lot of different people in the world. Yeah. And I think that's, matter of fact, I know that's one of the reasons why this book has been successful. Danny Dollar is about a young kid who, you know, wants to be successful, who promotes financial literacy, who, um, you know, instills leadership and values within his community and his friends and his family. He just happens to be black. There's nothing stereotypical about him. I honestly could change uh, uh, the character out and put in a little white girl or Asian boy and, and really wouldn't have to change anything about the actual character and tone of the book. And so it's because of that that Danny's been successful because kids, regardless of, of, um, of background or nationality or race, can read this book and just learn and, and be in, entertained and, and, and enjoy it. And the fact that they're doing it with a protagonist is, is like a young black kid, I think really matters. I've actually had little white boys uh, across the country dress up as Danny Dollar for, for Halloween. And I think like that's really powerful for these kids to want to be able to emulate a kid that, you know, doesn't look anything like them. The, my program, Danny Dollar Academy, has been implemented into uh, schools in, the, in, in Kentucky, in rural Kentucky and in rural uh, Iowa uh, and, um, and Ohio and, and places that just aren't very, you know, diverse. And to think that these kids are reading this story, enjoying it and learning from it, and the protagonist just happens to be a, a young black kid, I think is incredibly powerful and needed, you know, for, for kids to be able to see a peer and not someone in the struggle, not someone who grew up, you know, disenfranchised, but actually somebody that's exactly like them. And I, I think that there needs to be more books featuring young black protagonists so that kids of all genders, races, nationalities, uh, religions can be able to say, yeah, I like this guy. I like what he stands for. And not because he's black, but just because he's a kid who just happens to be black. And was that a conscious decision you made on the front end of writing this story is that he wasn't a, a black kid. He was just a kid that happened to be black. 
Yeah, like why why would I purposefully write a book solely for black kids? Like I, I like to me, that's not how we actually dismantle racism. It's not how we dismantle stereotypes. If I wrote this book really targeted solely for black kids with black jargon and black stereotypes or black, then it doesn't open up to the masses where these kids in rural areas can actually emulate them. I've had plenty of parents just look at this book and go, that book's on white parents and look at this book and go, that book's not for my kid. And then I ask them why. And they're like, well, you know, my, my, my kids doesn't look like that. Well, you know, my son read Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And, you know, there was right. nothing stereotypically white about him. He was just a kid. And so is this kid. And so uh, it was, I 100% needed to write this book just about a kid and, and, um, and to have this character really resonate with every child from everywhere, because I think it's incredibly powerful for kids of all races to be able to open this book up, see a young black kid and, and see a young kid that they admire and want to emulate that just doesn't kind of look like them. Now, what's interesting is I'm also a children's book author and my books star my dogs. And so my two dogs are two different breeds, but the stories are about empathy, inclusion and how they love the same things. They never think about their different breeds. They just like snacks and naps and playing with their toys. It wasn't until after I put this, these books out that I have an understanding from researching that there are more books that have representing young people than people of color representing young people. And so it was one of those things that it was an unconscious thing where the reason why I decided to use the dogs is because when I was interacting with people on social media, there were so many people that hated each other for different reasons. It could be race, it could be religion, it could be politics, it could be who puts sugars in their grits versus salt. Um, but when I would post pictures of my dogs, everyone would ooh and ah, and, and you know, they would, everyone would have this warm, warm, fuzzy feeling about the animals that we don't have for each other. So mm. it's interesting that I kind of played into the trope without even knowing it just by using my own dogs to try to teach these lessons. And so it's one of those things that where I still feel like my, my stories are powerful, but I also realize the power in representation. So um, how has it been for you not to just have Danny Dollar? And as you mentioned, he's a kid who happens to be black, but as a black man, as a children's book author in that space, how important have you seen uh, it to be to see an author that looks like them or even for the little white kids to see a black man being the author of the book? It's as important, if not more important. And the reason is I kind of uh, alluded to in my last TED talk is that, you know, our children, if you ask the average everyday kid, you know, they want to emulate LeBron James or Beyonce or Will Smith. And that's because they see them. They, they, they don't see the authors, you know, and, and for, for, for the most part. The world of literature doesn't exalt them the same way that the NBA exalts its players or that movies exalt their movie stars. And so if we're going to inspire all of our young people to read, and I don't care where you're from, every parent wants their kid to read, then we're going to have to do a better job of showcasing the actual stars of the world of literature, and that's the authors and illustrators. So it's incredibly important for me to be front and center and to be visible, but also to be joyful and, 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 and have fun like I do, like I project on my website, because that's how our kids learn. You know, they are, we all grew up, yourself, myself, wanting to emulate someone. You know, and um, and I grew up wanting to play uh, center field for the New York Yankees because Mickey Rivers was the guy that I idolized. And I I, I spend a lot of my childhood playing center field in, in Little League. And there's a kid that's shooting jump shots right now that wants to be just like LeBron James. 
Well, how are we going to inspire our young people to be readers and writers and illustrators if they don't get the opportunity to see the same people that we see and want to emulate on a regular basis? So, and to be a, a black man from the Bronx, from the hood, who understands the culture of, of hip hop and, and things that really matter to our kids, it's really important for me to be front and center to not just black kids, but to white kids as well, to help break the stereotypes that, that the media and the world in general just portrays upon black men, to, to showcase you know, a, a person that really enjoys life so much, that's trying to put good energy out into the world, that creates literature, not for young black kids, but for kids around the world. You know, it, it, it really matters. And so when I visit schools, regardless of whether they're diverse or not, you know, we build amazing relationships. And I know when they kids go home that day, they're empowered and they're enlightened and they're happy because they met this guy that made them feel good. And generally, in most cases, I don't think they go, yeah, I met a, a black author today. I think they just say, I, I met an author and, and he was really great. And I think the same thing happens for young black kids. They're like, you know, I just met this author. He really made me smile and really inspired me. Just the added bonus that I happen to may, may look a lot like them. So you mentioned growing up to a teenage mom in the Bronx, but in having athletic aspirations, have you always been an avid reader? Yeah, my mother made a point. My mother had me at 15 years old. And despite that, she was, um, she, we, there were always books in the house, always. And even at a very young age, as a, as a late teen, she had my brother and I, and she would go to the library and go get books, as she would say it for free 99, and bring them home and sit them on her bed, and she would just read us stories. And so the power of storytelling and reading was instilled in me at a very, very young age. And no matter where I was in my house, whether it was in the kitchen or the bathroom or the living room, books were always there. So at the age of nine, 10 years old, I was reading uh, Alex Haley's uh, di biography of Malcolm X. I was reading mm -hmm. Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. I was reading Native Son by Richard Wright. You know, all when kids were outside playing basketball. So, you know, the, those, those, those books really set the tone of, of my character and who I would later become uh, as an author. But did you have any foresight at that time when you were a, a voracious reader and your mom was making those books so readily available at that time? Were you ever thinking about being an author yourself? Not at all. It, it never entered my mind even for a second, despite being a ferocious reader. I never had the ideal of becoming a writer. Um, and maybe in part because I said before, I didn't really get to see Alex Haley and Ralph Ellison and and. Um, and Richard Wright. I didn't know what they looked like. So maybe if there was an opportunity for me to see them and see and, and, and you know, just know who they were and be able to listen to them talk, maybe that would have made a difference and, and, and brought me, because when you're able to see yourself as something, then, you know, it, it helps resonate with you a lot more. At that point, you know, I, I had, I had no idea what, what these people look like. And in fact, that's, cemented when I go and visit so many schools because kids will come up to me and say, wow, you're real. And because they don't associate with a real person being in these books because they don't see them the way that they see, you know, Drake or Jay-Z or Beyonce or somebody, they can see them. With authors, for the most part, they don't know what they look like. So, you know, I, I try to be relevant on social media. I have, you know, TikTok accounts, much to my daughter's chagrin. And, uh, you know, I just try to be really relevant because I, I want people not to just read my work, but also to, to, to feel my energy. 
And it sounds like when people say representation matters, you know, it sounds like just something to say, but it does make such a difference. And I think most of us as adults can remember the first time we saw someone that looked like us doing the thing that we didn't know we can do. I like to tell the story of uh, my first one. I'm from Bessemer, Alabama. It's a small town outside of Birmingham. And when I was a kid, Bo Jackson uh, was playing football and he was from Bessemer. And I did not know you could be from Bessemer and be on TV. So when they would say my cousins who went to high school with him and we would see him on TV, I couldn't understand how he could be from Bessemer and be on TV. And as a kid, that concept was not real to me. And so I know how important it is for me when I then became a news anchor to show kids from Bessemer that you can be on TV. It sounds so basic to you as an adult. Like, yeah, anybody can be anything, but it is so important for us to show up, whether you're an accountant, whether you're a banker or a doctor, to say, yeah, you can be like me or even exposing them to the idea that even if you've never seen one like you, you can still do it. 100%. Yeah. Great story. Yeah. I appreciate that. So you are a dynamic speaker, a a motivational person, not just for young people, also for adults. On the show, we always, you actually uh, quoted Gandhi with be the change. And we like to use the hashtag be the change to encourage our listeners not to just listen and be inspired, but we want them to be motivated to move. We want to leave them with action items. So if you can leave us with an action item, something that someone listening right now could do today or tomorrow or this week or this month to be the change in their own communities, uh, what would you offer? Um, I, I think the first thing I have like a thousand things I could say, but I think one of the things that I learned really early in this path is that nobody's coming to save you. No, no, there's, there's no one coming to, to, to rescue you. No one's coming to pay your rent. No one's coming to sit and just isn't. You have to be your own advocate. You have to be your own savior. Your success is not predicated upon your, your, your history or how you were raised or what race or your, how much money you have. It's really predicated upon one question. It's one question that I've asked myself every day ever since I contemplated becoming an author. And that one question is, how bad do you want it? Like, like what are you willing to sacrifice to, to be able to bring your dreams to fruition and, and to be the change that the world needs to see? And so, um, so I've, I've always tried to build value in myself, like I said before, to, to educate myself and empower myself on how to, to be the best writer, speaker, advocate that I possibly can be. And, um, and just do the work. I mean, um, like I said before, you don't have to be the most talented or the most, have the most money or the best looks. It, it, it really just is about how, how hard are you willing to work to bring your dreams to fruition. So, you know, if there's anything I can live, leave, leave um, your, your viewers and listeners to, is that when, when you look in the, in the mirror, just know that the person that's responsible for your success is that person that you're looking at. And there is no one else. So do whatever it is that you have to do. Educate yourself and empower yourself in whatever way that you have to. But go to sleep at night knowing that you are solely responsible to own your victories and your failures because they are both yours and do whatever it need, they, you need to do to become successful. Ty Allen Jackson. We, we're going to call this our little mini TED Talk. We're going to borrow this and say, hey, we had Ty Allen Jackson give us a TED Talk personally right here yeah. on the History of Black. Hopefully you'll come back and join us for another uh, episode and become a friend because once you become a guest, you now are officially a friend. And that means you always have to reply to emails and phone calls when we reach out. So I don't know if you've been in the fine print with the original invitation. Uh, thank you guys again for listening to this episode of the History of Being Black. And until next time, take care of yourselves and we'll see you then. 
The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer, Ariel Mancibo. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcast, And on IG and Twitter at History of Being Black. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.